Chapter 25 of A History of California, the American Period, by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 25 Background of the Pacific Railroad. On July 1st, 1862, when the nation was beset by the danger and stress of the Civil War, President Lincoln signed a bill entitled an act to aid in the construction of a railroad and telegraph line from the Missouri River to the Pacific Ocean, and to secure to the government the use of the same for postal, military, and other purposes. Ten nights later, the city of San Francisco gave itself up to a magnificent celebration in honor of an event for which all California had waited with impatience or despair for nearly fifteen years. A newspaper of the time thus described the jubilation. Quote, a multitude of flaring lamps and torches and blue lights with any number of banners, over fifty transparencies of red and white and other colors, fountains of yellow sparks bubbling up here and there, meteoric white and red and blue lights shooting hither and thither from Roman candles, and rockets soaring high into the air, leaving long tracks of yellow sparks and then bursting in many-colored balls overhead. Thus the long and brilliant procession marched in a blaze of lights, while the air was thick with smoke and loud with the music of clamoring bands, shriekings of the steam whistle, and the thunders of cannons. Among the most interesting features of the procession were fifty or more transparencies borne between the long lines of shouting people. From the wording of these inscriptions, it is possible to gather something of the spirit of the occasion. One read, quote, The locomotive, his prow is wet with the surge and foam of either ocean. His breast is grim with the sands of the desert. Another bore these lines, quote, A union of lakes, a union of hands, a union of states none can sever. A union of hearts, a union of hands, and the railroad unites us forever. End quote. A slightly different theme, as well as a different literary flavor, was contained in such expressions as Cape Horn be blowed, Salt Lake City the halfway house, and Chesapeake Bay oysters six days from the water. The boosting spirit was also much in evidence as appeared in California, watering place of the world, and in the following not yet accomplished prophecy. San Francisco in 1862, 100,000 inhabitants. San Francisco in 1872, 1 million inhabitants. The Pacific Railroad, said another, Uncle Sam's waistband. He has grown so corpulent he would burst without it. But all the transparencies none better express the sentiment of the time than that which ran, Quote, the transcontinental railway, its construction no longer promised to our ear to be broken to our hope. For in truth, the final enactment of the Pacific Railroad Bill was the culmination of a long, vexatious, and at times apparently hopeless struggle. Beginning in 1832, with the publication of an anonymous article in The Emigrant, a weekly newspaper of Ann Arbor, Michigan, advocating the construction of a transcontinental railway, the idea of a road to the Pacific was brought forward from time to time by various visionaries 
until at last it found a real champion in the person of Asa Whitney. Whitney, fresh from two years' stay in China, had an admirable genius for sustained enthusiasm. On January 28, 1845, he laid before the Senate the first of a long series of memorials dealing with the project of a line from Lake Michigan to Oregon. During the next eight years, he devoted his time and much of his private fortune seeking to educate Congress and the American public to think in terms of a continent. Whitney's plan, while providing for the construction of the road at private hands, called for the grant to the company of a strip of public land 60 miles wide and extending from one terminus of the line to the other. The land covered by this grant, however, was to be sold at a low figure to actual settlers, and the road itself upon completion was to become the property of the nation. This proposal, afterwards modified in some important particulars, aroused much popular interest, and by the close of 1848, no less than 17 state legislatures, besides many unofficial bodies, had petitioned Congress for its adoption. The opponents of Whitney's plan, however, even from the beginning, were about as numerous as its advocates. Their objections were based chiefly upon four grounds. The cost and difficulty of building any road across the continent, it was said, made the undertaking a stupendous piece of folly. The land grants sought by Whitney were a colossal robbery of the public. The enterprise ought to be taken wholly out of private hands and made a government affair. And, finally, the proposed route across the continent was much inferior to others that might have been selected. With public opinion divided by these various differences, it was impossible to expect Congress for many years to sanction Whitney's undertaking, or in fact to unite on any plan for the construction of a Pacific Railroad. The chief disagreement arose over the question of routes, for nearly every section of the country, looking to its own local interests, advocated some particular line to the west and denounced other proposals as impractical or sectional. After 1850, however, Upon at least one point, opinion was tolerably well united. It was generally accepted that the road should terminate in California instead of in Oregon, a change from Whitney's original plan made necessary by the acquisition of the Mexican War Territory and the inrush of population into California caused by the gold excitement. For a time, the impression prevailed throughout the country, and even in Congress, that almost any of the transcontinental trails over which wagons could be taken were feasible for a railroad. But by 1852, the choice had pretty well narrowed down to four or five main routes. Of these, the line proposed by Whitney from Lake Michigan to the Columbia by way of the South Pass, with a branch to San Francisco, was the most northerly. It followed in the main course of one of the oldest and most traveled of the western trails. Somewhat to the south of this, running between the 38th and 39th parallels, lay a line proposed by Senator Benton, with its starting point at St. Louis and its terminus at San Francisco. Benton, who had long been interested in western transportation, especially in its relation to Asiatic commerce, was known as a vigorous opponent both of Whitney's route and of his proposed land grants. In lieu of these, the Missouri senator urged the route mentioned above and the construction of the road at government expense. 
part of the route advocated by benton had been explored by his indefatigable son-in-law john c fremont who had lost a number of his men and nearly perished himself in the undertaking but even without the knowledge of the route obtained by fremont benton was not one to be seriously disturbed by any lack of scientific data Quote, there is a class of topographical engineers he was wont to declare older than the schools and more unerring than the mathematicians they are the wild animals buffalo elk deer antelope bears which traverse the forests not by compass but by instinct that leads them always the right way to the lowest passes in the mountains the shallowest fords in the rivers and the shortest practical lines between remote points the line benton proposed crossed from the upper reaches of the rio grande to the grand and green river basin by way of cuchitopa pass a pass benton's opponents ridiculed as being the highest peak in the range and continued almost due west until it reached the mormon settlements of parowan and cedar city in southern utah footnote the elevation of this pass was ten thousand thirty two feet in footnote from this point the road might either turn south some two hundred miles along the course of the virgin river and then proceed westward to the tohon or walker pass or it could continue westward along its original course from the mormon towns to the sierra nevada skirting south along the base of these mountains until a pass should be found into the san joaquin branches from the main railroad were to be built to santa fe salt lake city and the columbia another transcontinental route persistently urged and popular in many quarters traversed the state of texas to el paso followed the gila to the colorado and thence crossed the desert to san diego over the course followed by colonel emory in eighteen forty seven this is commonly known as the southern or thirty-second parallel route and was afterwards made use of in part by the first overland mail a road along this line was naturally favored by the southern states because of what it meant to their economic development the charge that slavery dictated this choice though often made is scarcely tenable entirely apart from sectional interests the route had much to commend it because of its easy grades and almost complete freedom from snow these advantages however were somewhat offset by its additional length compared to the more direct routes and the desert territory through which it passed in addition to these three main routes the northern the central and the southern there were a number of others of somewhat less importance among the most likely of these minor routes was one especially championed by senator gwynne of california from san francisco it ran down the san joaquin crossed the sierra through walker pass and continued along the thirty-fifth parallel to albuquerque new mexico thence it turned south to a point near santa fe a branch road was thence to be built along the old santa fe trail to independence but the main line according to the plan was to take a more direct course to fulton arkansas this terminus was to be the common meeting place of roads running to memphis and new orleans branch lines to council bluffs and austin texas were also proposed at other points along the route and in california a road was to be built up the sacramento to oregon still another proposed route followed whitney's original line as far as the south passed but turned into california instead of oregon taking the course of the humboldt river from a point near salt lake 
and crossing the Sierra by one of the northern passes. From this general summary, it will be seen that railroad routes to California were plentiful enough on paper in the early 50s to satisfy the demands of every section. No intelligent choice could be made between them, however, from the data then available, since most of this was too general in character to satisfy the demands of railroad engineering. To meet this necessity for more accurate and detailed information, Congress at last authorized an official survey of the various routes. The work was begun in 1853 under the direction of Jefferson Davis, who was then Secretary of War. For more than two years, it was carried on so vigorously and efficiently that nearly all the routes subsequently followed by transcontinental roads were carefully reconnoitered and their feasibility for railroad purposes pretty accurately determined. In addition to this work, for which they were specifically organized, the Surveying Corps also gathered a vast store of material relating to the history, geology, botany, and ethnology of the Trans-Mississippi West. The surveys covered five principal routes. The most northerly lay between the 47th and 49th parallels. The second ran between the 41st and 42nd parallels. The third between the 38th and 39th parallels. The fourth along the course of the 35th parallel. And the fifth near the 32nd parallel. It will thus be seen that the operations of the reconnaissance parties extended from the Mississippi Valley to the Pacific, and almost from the Canadian line to the Mexican border. Except as their labors actually touched California, however, space cannot be given in the present volume to the exploration of these parties. Among the most important contributors to the success of the undertaking, as it related to California, were A. W. Whipple, R. S. Williamson, J. G. Park, H. L. Abbott, and E. G. Beckwith the successor of the unfortunate Gunnison, who was killed by the Indians on the Sevier River. Beckwith's survey covered the region from Salt Lake to the upper end of the Sacramento Valley. After leaving Salt Lake, his party followed the familiar emigrant route along the Humboldt, but at its sink, instead of turning south to the Truckee, the company took a more northerly course, mapping out two possible lines across the Sierra. One of these led through Madeline Pass, Round Valley, and the Pitt River Canyon. The other, a little further south, began the passage of the mountains at Honey Lake, crossed the summit by way of Noble Pass, and struck a tributary of the Sacramento known as Battle Creek. Both routes terminated at Fort Redding, whence the route down the level valley of the Sacramento was already sufficiently well known. Whipple's survey, on its part, covered much of the route afterwards adopted by the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. Leaving Fort Smith on the Arkansas, the line ran to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and thence to the Colorado, and by way of Zuni, Aztec Pass, and Bill Williams Fork, through a territory previously but little known. Leaving the Colorado a short distance above the Needles, so-called because of certain mountain promontories, Whipple mapped out a feasible immigrant road to the Mojave. He then followed this stream until the old Spanish trail branched off to the Cajon Pass above San Bernardino. An examination of this pass, so long used by Santa Fe traders and fur hunters, showed it altogether practical for a railroad, and it afterwards became one of the great gateways for transcontinental traffic. The southern, or 32nd parallel route, had already been in part surveyed by Lieutenant Colonel Emery, 
first while serving in general kearney's expedition and afterwards as a member of the united states mexican boundary commission but a more extended examination of the route was made by the surveys of eighteen fifty three and eighteen fifty four the line between the red river and the rio grande was surveyed by captain john pope from el paso the work was carried westward by lieutenant park to the pima villages on the gila river in arizona emory's survey of the boundary line was considered adequate to bridge the gap between this point and the colorado west of the colorado the work was entrusted to lieutenant williamson while the routes leading to california were thus being examined other parties were making a reconnaissance of possible routes within the state itself the most important work along this line was done by r s williamson and his chief aide lieutenant park the first task assigned williamson was to discover a feasible route from the gila river to san francisco bay connecting with the thirty-second and thirty-fifth parallel surveys east of the colorado in the course of this work williamson made a careful examination of the mountain passes that led eastward from the lower san joaquin valley and of those through the sierra madre range to the coast williamson's expedition left benicia july tenth eighteen fifty three and entered the san joaquin by way of livermore pass crossing to the east side of the valley the party took the usual route to the delta of the Cahuilla where they secured the services of Alexander Gotti, the famous guide who had given such material aid to Fremont at an earlier date. Walker's Pass was the first objective of the expedition. Contrary to popular impression, for this pass had long been described as the logical gateway through the Sierra, it was found to be wholly impractical for railway purposes on account of the difficulty of its westward approach because of this drawback and the position of the pass relative to the location that proposed routes williamson pronounced it the worst of all known passes in the sierra nevadas for a transcontinental railway though disappointed in the character of walker's pass williamson was agreeably surprised to find that the tehachapi offered a satisfactory outlet for a railroad from the san joaquin to the great basin he next examined the Tejon Pass, but found it, like Walker's, very far from satisfactory. The Cañada de las Uvas, Grapevine Canyon, opening into the Tejon, furnished a much more practical route between the San Joaquin and the Mojave Desert. This patch and the Tehachapi Williamson accordingly favored in his report. Williamson's next problem was to discover an outlet through the Sierra Madre range, which lies between the Mojave Desert and the seacoast. A wagon road had already been built from Los Angeles by way of San Fernando into the valley of the Santa Clara. Thence it followed the sinuous course of the San Francisquito Canyon, passed by Elizabeth Lake, and entered the Tejon. Upon examination, however, the San Francisquito Canyon proved impractical for a railway, but east of the San Francisquito Canyon lay another canyon, which an extended survey showed to be well adapted to the desired road. This canyon, known to the Californians as Soledad, and now used by the main line of the Southern Pacific, Williamson called the New Pass. The New Pass furnished an outlet from the Mojave as far as the Santa Clara River. From this valley, a line could be run without too great difficulty to Los Angeles. It was also believed that the course of the river would furnish a practical route for the extension of the road toward the Salinas Valley in San Francisco. Further east of Soledad Canyon, 
the Cajon Pass offered a gateway between San Bernardino, with an easy connection to Los Angeles, and the proposed Mojave River-Colorado line. One of the most important contributions to the surveys in California was made by Lieutenant Park, who examined the great San Gorgonio Pass lying between the two highest peaks of the Sierra Madre Range, Mount San Gorgonio, or Grayback, and San Jacinto. This pass, pronounced by Williamson to be the best pass in the coast range, as indeed it easily is, furnished a feasible route from San Pedro and Los Angeles down the valleys, since known as Coachella and Imperial, to the junction of the Gila and the Colorado rivers. It thus afforded a practical outlet for the proposed southern or 32nd parallel route to the Pacific. It was also hoped that a line might be run from the Colorado by way of Warner's Pass, or through some similar gap in the mountains farther south, to San Diego. But upon examination, neither Warner's nor any other pass in the locality proved suitable for the desired line. As a result of these investigations, Williamson concluded that a road built from the Mississippi to the mouth of the Gila would reach the Pacific most easily by way of San Gorgonio Pass, San Bernardino, and Los Angeles. If it were decided to make San Diego the terminus, the line could be extended south along the coast after leaving the San Gorgonio Pass. This was the only feasible plan of reaching San Diego, since the mountains made a more direct approach impractical. Three possible routes presented themselves for extending the road to San Francisco. The line might run northward along the Colorado from the Gila, then turn westward to the Mojave and enter the San Joaquin by way of the Tehachapi. Or, having reached Los Angeles by the Cajon or San Gorgonio Pass, it might either be built northward along the coast or else be carried back to the Mojave Desert by way of Soledad Canyon and extended to the San Joaquin through the Tehachapi. Having reached the San Joaquin, the line could find an outlet through the coast range by the Pachico Pass to San Jose. Lieutenant Park was in charge of the investigations covering the route along the coast from Los Angeles to San Francisco. His examination was carefully made, but the details cannot be entered into here. He thought the road might be built for $20 million and pointed out the beneficial effect it would have upon the development of rich agricultural lands between Los Angeles and Monterey. A half-century elapsed, however, before the Southern Pacific, following the park's suggestions, completed this vital length between the north and south. The careful surveys of Williamson and Park in Southern California were duplicated in the northern part of the state the following year, 1855. Williamson was again put in charge of the work, but as Park was busy elsewhere, Lieutenant H. L. Abbott was detailed to act as chief assistant. The main object of this investigation was to discover a feasible route between the Sacramento Valley and Oregon, either by way of the Willamette River or the Deschutes. The Deschutes route involved a recrossing of the Sierra Nevada along the earlier line mapped out by Beckwith, and a survey of the region lying between the eastern outlet of Nobles Pass and the Klamath River. The course of this stream was then followed for some distance until a low range of hills allowed the party to cross to the Deschutes. The valley of this river, which was supposed to furnish an outlet to the Dalles, after a time proved impossible for railway purposes, and though a pass was afterwards found heading into the Willamette Valley, the route as a whole proved too difficult, 
and the country too sterile to make the construction of a railroad practical. The second line marked out for survey between California and Oregon was much more favored by Williamson and Abbott. It tapped the rich mining regions of Shasta and Trinity counties, and ran through the fertile Umpqua, Rogue, and Willamette valleys. On this route, the chief difficulty was presented by the mountainous country lying between Shasta City and Wairika. Indian troubles, however, unfortunately prevented a careful examination of much of the region. But Abbott's conjecture that the route would prove eminently practical upon further investigation was later verified by the construction of the Oregon and California Railway from San Francisco to Portland. The Pacific Railroad reports, which embodied the findings of Whipple, Gunnison, Stevens, Beckwith, and the rest, showed plainly enough that no insurmountable difficulty had been placed by nature in the way of a railroad to the west. But unfortunately for the immediate construction of such a road, the same report showed that it might follow at least four routes across the continent, thus keeping alive that sectional rivalry which had already proved such a serious impediment to the railway bill. The selection of the southern route by Secretary Davis as the most desirable for railway purposes did little to mend the situation. He was charged with pro-slavery and sectional motives, though his choice was wholly justified from the engineering and financial standpoint, and the battle between the various routes went on as vigorously and indecisively as before. In this contest, the southern route scored two important gains. One, the acquisition of the Butterfield Overland Mail, as already been spoken of. The other, which transpired some years before the Overland Mail, while in fact the railroad surveys were still in progress, was the so-called Gadsden Purchase. This further acquisition of Mexican territory was urged because it was found that a railroad following the general line of the 32nd parallel would be compelled at times to dip south of the border owing to topographical difficulties and run for part of its course through the state of Sonora. To keep the road wholly on American soil, President Pierce therefore sent Colonel James G. Gadsden of South Carolina to negotiate with Mexico for the desired territory. Gadsden, himself a railroad president and one of the earliest advocates of a line to the Pacific, had suggested in 1845 that its terminus be made either Mazatlan or San Francisco. He was an ardent enthusiast for the southern route and succeeded without great difficulty in securing Mexico's consent to the transfer of some 45,000 square miles, lying just south of Arizona and New Mexico, for $10 million. After a good deal of debate, the treaty was ratified by the United States Senate and went into effect June 30, 1854. Footnote. The Southern Pacific, for much of its course from Yuma to El Paso, now runs through this Gadsden Purchase. The treaty also provided for certain transit rights across the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. In footnote. While the federal government was thus concerned with the question of a railroad to the Pacific, the people of California were also busily engaged in agitation for the project. Their newspapers were continually harping upon it. Mass meetings and conventions were called to further the enterprise, and California congressmen and senators were made to feel that the chief end of their political life was to secure the enactment of a railroad bill. The state legislature similarly showed great enthusiasm for the enterprise. 
Much of this, expressed in oratory and memorials to Congress, did little good, but a few practical results were accomplished by other means. Most important of these was an examination of that portion of the Sierra Nevada lying between the American River and Carson Pass for the purpose of constructing an immigrant road that later might serve as a railway route across the mountains. This investigation, carried out under the Surveyor General's orders by Sherman Day and George H. Goddard, whose name is still retained by one of the highest peaks in the Sierra, served materially to supplement the surveys previously made by the federal government. In California, however, as in the nation at large, sectional rivalries prevented general support of any one route. San Diego, Los Angeles, and San Francisco each had its ambition to become the railway center of the West and the result was a frittering away of energy and urging local claims that might better have been spent in concerted action. This lack of harmony among Californians seriously weakened the railroad cause at Washington, and was one of the reasons for the long years of delay between the time of the completion of the surveys and the actual construction of the road. So, in spite of a need which grew more urgent every year, various adverse factors continued to defeat the pacific railroad until the patience of the people of california was almost gone in 1859 a san francisco editor summed up this popular feeling in the following exasperated protest Quote, if ever a people belonging to and forming part and parcel of a great nation were subject to a downright persecution from the government to which they owe allegiance the people of California are the ones of all others that furnish the most prominent and striking example of such treatment. We are wholly at the mercy of a gang of political harpies who care no more for the interests of California than they do for those of the wild tribes of the interior of South Africa. If all that we have given to the world thus far, all the benefit that California has bestowed on the rest of the Union, and all that she has yet to become or to count for nothing in the estimation of the government, then let it be so understood, and let us cast about us and see what we can accomplish single-handed. If this editorial fairly represented public opinion on the coast, as it did without much question, then political necessity as well as economic expediency demanded the enactment of a railroad bill. The outbreak of the Civil War brought the issue to a climax. The federal government at last saw that a railroad must be built to California if California were to be kept within the Union. At the same time, since the southern route was eliminated from consideration because so much of it lay within Confederate territory, the question of the location of the road was greatly simplified. Succession and war thus cleared the way for the eagerly awaited but long delayed Pacific Railroad. End of chapter 25.